This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracusso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with Harvard and Mass General's Dr. Renee Salas the health effects of the climate crisis on children. Dr. Salas, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Dr. Salas's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, two weeks ago today, the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court heard oral arguments concerning the Juliana versus U.S. case, a case filed in 2015 by 21 children seeking a jury verdict on whether the U.S. government, by failing to address the climate crisis, is protecting the plaintiff's rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In its defense, the U.S. is arguing these children, now young adults, have no fundamental constitutional right, quote-unquote, to, quote, a climate system capable of sustaining human life, close quote. The data supports the plaintiff's assertion. Despite a substantial increase in the use of renewable resources over the past few years, for example, in 2018, coal accounted for 38% of the world's power generation. Coal accounted for the exact same 38% 20 years ago, coincidentally the approximate age of many of these plaintiffs. As a comparative aside, the UK currently operates six coal plants. If the US with approximately five times the UK's population had a commensurate number, it would operate 30 coal plants. The US currently operates over 240. In a May 30th essay published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Salas and two colleagues concluded, quote, as the Juliana plaintiffs argue, and we agree, Climate change is the greatest public health emergency in our time and is particularly harmful to fetuses, infants, children, and adolescents. With me to discuss what particular health harms the climate crisis is exacting on children, or the so-called Z generation, is again Dr. Salas. Finally, listeners may be aware this is my seventh climate crisis-related interview since last October. So that is background, uh, Dr. Salas. I do know um, beyond uh, your research and your work as an emergency physician, uh, you are also a contributing author to the Lancet Countdown, annual Lancet Countdown report, and you also are have signed on to an amicus brief filed by uh, 13 organizations, including the American Academy of Pediatrics and others, the American Pediatric Society, Lung and Heart Associations and others, uh, in support of the Juliana Plaintiffs. My question in mentoring the amicus brief, how satisfied are not with you with the number of people, organizations that have signed on? I counted 13. Yes, correct. Um, you know, the amicus brief uh, was led by Wendy Jacobs at the Emmett Environmental Law and Policy Clinic at Harvard Law School. You know, the goal was really to outline the current evidence in the U.S. for how climate change is impacting the health of children. Um, and many facets of that were highlighted in the perspective uh, that uh, Wendy and um, Frederica Fiera from Columbia um, wrote. So, yeah, there were nearly 80 signatories, and that included, you know, very prominent um, organizations as well, so including the American Academy of Pediatrics, American Heart Association, and American Lung Association. 
I didn't see, though, the American Medical Association or the American Hospital Association on the list. Yeah, so this process, um, which uh, actually Regina LaRoque um, here at MGH really helped lead um, internally, proved to be um, quite um, quite a, a fast process. Um, so we really had about a month to get the brief written, um, and that included, you know, essentially doing a very extensive literature search to ensure that we represented uh, and presented, you know, the most up-to-date um, health information. And so that actually left us uh, very little time to be able to engage a lot of um, organizations. We sort of did a very broad reach and attempted to uh, get as many signatories as possible. Unfortunately, though, some institutions um, and organizations did require longer timelines uh, in order to approve um, their signature on a brief such as this. Um, and so I'd like to be hopeful that if we'd had a little bit uh, longer uh, timeline to get that submitted, uh, that potentially we could have had um, increased signatories. Um, but that said, I'm you know very thankful for all the signatories we got and think it truly uh, supported uh, the gravity of what we were stating. Great, thank you. Uh, one other background question before we get into the substance here. There are numerous uh, cases related uh, to Juliana pending uh, between actually Norway and New Zealand, and uh, specifically last October, you may be aware The Hague in the Netherlands ruled in favor of nearly 900 plaintiffs in that case, confirming the fact that the Dutch government needed to accelerate its reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from 17 to 25 percent against 90 levels by 2025. Um, so the reason I mention that, to your knowledge or understanding, is the U.S. medical profession involved in any of these other cases, since, of course, uh, greenhouse gas emissions don't um, are worldwide, and any that the U.S. emits, of course, affect uh, the lives of people around the world. Yeah, you, uh, you highlighted really a fundamental issue uh, to climate change and why there is such a um, health equity and social justice component to it, because what we do here obviously affects um, individuals halfway around the globe, and often those who contributed the least actually suffer the greatest health burden, and that's especially true for children, for example, the Juliana plaintiffs. Uh, and so, uh, to my knowledge, I'm not uh, aware on if um, other healthcare professionals, uh, at least within the U.S., are involved in those cases. Uh, I am encouraged by the fact that I think the, um, the reframing of climate change as a public health emergency that it truly is, is increasingly uh, becoming more prominent. Um, and I would hope that uh, health is a prominent feature and the health impacts to those plaintiffs um, are being highlighted. Okay, thank you. Let's get into the uh, specifics here. So, again, your perspective piece as well as uh, the brief uh, uh, presents the latest uh, research findings as it relates to the health effects uh, on children. Um, I've actually <laughs> typed up probably 20 uh, th that you mentioned and others about which um, were, so uh, I'll leave it to you if you would just uh, give an overall uh, answer, and I'll probably have some follow-ups on uh, these many uh, health effects. So please start, and of course, I guess maybe to prompt you, the obvious you often hear almost first relative to children is asthma. Hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I think just to kind of take one step back, it's the fact that, you know, what I just highlighted previously in my statement, that, you know, today's children, again, are that perfect example of that disturbing truth that those who do not contribute to the greenhouse gases um, that are really driving climate changes, you know, catastrophic downstream effects are those that are suffering the most health impacts. 
Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the perhaps one of the most startling, you know, statistics is the World Health Organization has estimated that 88% of the global health burden of climate change now falls on children less than five years of age. Yes. So as a doctor, you know, I feel an ethical and moral obligation to protect their health. And obviously one of their ways to protect their health and save lives in their generation is to shift from fossil fuels to renewable energy. And I think that also highlights really the uh, connection between climate change and fossil fuels. Um, combustion, which produces air pollution, especially particulate matters. Um, and so, you know, you highlighted we can, you know, asthma is obviously a very um, uh, key initial um, um, outcome. Uh, and it's, you know, as the exposure to air pollutants, for example, have been linked to increased mortality, school absenteeism, um, asthma-related ED visits and admissions, um, and cognitive and behavioral effects. And in fact, it's even been shown that early life exposure to air pollutants increases the child's likelihood of developing asthma um, and actually having diminished lung function as a teenager. And, you know, the combustion of coal at power plants uh, produces other uh, toxic um, factors as well, such as mercury. Mm -hmm. And that's a known potent neurotoxin for fetuses, and that's been shown to lead to reduced cognitive ability and motor function, even when uh, children are exposed to very low levels of exposure. Um, Another big one is heat, and, you know, I think heat is that, you know, ubiquitous exposure that no matter where you live within the U.S., you know, it can be, uh, you can be exposed to it, as where some of the other uh, climate change exposures tend to um, have geographic uh, predisposition. Um, And so, you know, it's been shown that in utero exposure uh, to heat has increased risk of pregnancy complications and birth defects. Um, infants, um, especially in their first week of life, are especially susceptible to heat. And one study actually showed there was a 25% increase um, in mortality in infants. But even, you know, those that you think are, you know, young and um, immune to climate change, so you think about teenage athletes, for example, I mean, they've shown that ED visits and injuries due to heat-related injuries has actually increased uh, by about 134% between 1997 and 2006. Um, just to kind of hit a few other highlights, you know, infectious disease, we know that vector-borne um, diseases mm-hmm. are also uh, climate-sensitive, and those are increasing, and the Zika virus um, is one of those climate-sensitive diseases. And I think, you know, most people are aware of the, the linked birth defects that um, have been shown to be associated with that, with a 21% increase happening in that outbreak in 2015. And unfortunately, Lyme disease, which, you know, I see a lot here in the Northeast and even see in my practice at, uh, in, within the city of Boston, uh, that children between the ages of five and nine especially are, um, have the highest incidence of, of Lyme disease. And again, that's been uh, having increasing incidence and also um, has been shown to be present in areas uh, where it previously hadn't. And then I think, you know, one of the, the last ones I'll hi- highlight is you know, the mental health impacts. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, unfortunately all of climate change health impacts, this is the way I describe it, and I recognize the irony of my description, and that's that it's really an iceberg in the sense that, you know, right now we we understand the health impacts that are above the surface of the water, but there's, unfortunately, I believe, an enormous burden of disease that we have yet to really characterize and understand. Um, And I think that includes the mental health impacts. And, you know, as we know that... um, extreme weather is becoming, you know, more powerful and intense because of climate change. We, unfortunately, will face uh, more of these uh, incidents, and children will be exposed to it more so. But just as an example on what extreme weather can do to children, in Hurricane Katrina, they found that out of about 200,000 children, about half of 
those the preschool age children and about 70% of middle school age children met the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, they've even now found that this thing called toxic stress where, you know, when, um, when children are exposed to these types of stresses, it can not only impair a child's healthy development, it can actually alter their gene expression, and so thus it could be passed on to future generations. And so, you know, I think that overall we need to do a lot more uh, research to really understand uh, what the true impacts um, of climate change are on health and some of the work that just came out uh, within the past year includes, for example, seeing an association between increasing heat and uh, resistance of uh, bacteria to antibiotics. Um, and that, you know, is something that keeps me up at night because those are, as an emergency medicine physician, I rely on my antibiotics to be able mm -hmm. to treat uh, patients that come in with severe infections. And if this is going to be a threat multiplier with uh, climate change and increasing temperatures, um, I mean, obviously more work needs to be done. But again, just highlighting that uh, I think we are still in our infancy of understanding these health impacts. Thank you. So on mental health, uh, oftentimes uh, that's in context of, uh, as you suggested, PTSD. There's also, of course, uh, since we're talking about lung effects, there's wildfire smoke exposure that you discuss. Uh, and then, uh, to your credit as well, you mentioned uh, nutrition or malnutrition because foodstuffs mm -hmm. will have less protein. Uh, and then, of course, from public health, there's the classic uh, contaminated water issue. Um, and uh, speaking of, you also know drug shortages, and of course that was a problem relative to the consequences yeah. of uh, the hurricane that hit Puerto Rico. Um, so the list goes on and on and on. Per uh, your latter point, and I'll quote you, I thought this was interesting. You say in the essay, quote unquote, we have only scratched the surface in terms of our understanding of the range of health harms associated with climate change and related increases in air pollution over the lifetime of a child born in the past decade or two. Um, where do you think research needs to go or is going uh, such that we can um, get further, uh, understand further uh, how complex and substantive this is? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I, there's a one quote from the 2018 Lancet Countdown Global Report uh, that I have uh, often used and it's another thing that keeps me up at night, and that's that, you know, climate change has the potential to disrupt core public health infrastructure and overwhelm health services. So one thing I'm particularly interested in from a research standpoint and something that my group here at the Harvard Global Health Institute is working to advance is to really understand how the different climate change exposure pathways, um, specifically extreme weather, sort of our initial focus, is really increasing um, and impacting utilization of healthcare services. And subsequent to that, we can also then begin to quantify what the true costs are to the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. All of the cost-benefit analyses that are currently ongoing really don't take into account what the healthcare impacts are. And especially thinking about Medicare, for example, I mean, that is a cost to the federal government. And so, you know, we're working to try to better understand what those uh, the costs associated with that are. And then... You know, I think another uh, bucket of, of research that is needed is, to, again, as I you know, hinted at previously, that we do truly need to begin to understand what some of these additional connections are uh, between and how climate change is impacting health because we can't figure out how to best protect health unless we understand what those impacts are. An example is, you know, Vibrio, which is a 
you know, bacteria that loves uh, warmer ocean waters, you know, they found that there's been an increasing suitability for that bacteria in waters off the northeast here, so where I live. And so because we are seeing that the suitability is increasing, you know, for example, that's a way that research is able to provide us um, a window into the future of what future healthcare impacts and health impacts may be as more individuals are exposed potentially to Vibrio. Mm-hmm. Then I think, you know, the third bucket is really developing evidence-based adaptation research. So, you know, again, I, you know, I often say that even if I snap my fingers now and somehow magically, and I wish I could, you know, uh, eliminate all greenhouse gas emissions globally, you know, the greenhouse gases that currently exist in the environment are still going to continue to have, you know, their catastrophic impacts. And so we really need to learn even, you know, concurrently as we uh, mitigate and decrease our greenhouse gas emissions rapidly, we also need to learn how to best protect uh, vulnerable populations, and we really need to use research to be able to do that. So as we all know, we have limited resources, uh, and so we need to learn what is the best way to allocate these resources to protect uh, vulnerable populations. And so that's some of the work we're trying to do now locally within Boston um, with uh, other collaborators, and I think that's really the future is is determining um, how to best um, adapt Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, relative to the true, your comment about true costs via um, these healthcare impacts, I'll just note, and I thought upwards now of half of children born today are bought under the federal Medicaid program. Um, and mm-hmm. candidly, I don't see anything in the Medicaid program uh, out of CMS that's uh, taking or addressing um, this. So, my next question, I, I admit, is I feel as if I should ask it. I think it's largely unanswerable, but I, it's, it's a valid question nevertheless. So I phrase by what, if anything, can parents do uh, to protect their children? Um, I suppose maybe it comes down to just um, physicians, pediatricians, amongst others, providing a better education to parents or um I mean, if, again, per your uh, WHO comment, which is uh, noted in the essay, 88% of the burden falls on children, um, how do parents of children uh, try to address this? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think as a parents want what's best for their children. Absolutely. And they want their children to live in a healthy world. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, I think universally children, uh, parents want uh, a better life for their children than they had. And unfortunately, we're at a, you know, respected point in time where that is just, it's not anticipated uh, based off uh, what climate change is currently doing to our planet um, and to our health. And so, you know, at first and foremost, I think parents need to recognize the impact that climate change is having on their children's health uh, and, you know, understanding that then they need to engage in, you know, whatever type of mitigation actions they can. And I think while personal actions are very important, you know, I think more importantly, you know, there's a statistic that, um, you know, even city, uh, regional, and local action um, of, um, or I should say in state action around climate change has only gotten us to about half of our Paris Agreement commitments. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you've highlighted this previously that, you know, our Paris Agreement commitments are even, you know, grossly inadequate to even meet what the IPCC has set out uh, that we need to achieve in order to try to maintain global temperature below 1.5. So we need rapid, um, groundbreaking uh, actions.
action on uh, reducing our reliance on fossil fuels and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And that really is going to take the public to engage and, and tell our federal leaders that we need federal action because that's how we can really develop the widespread landscape uh, that we need and the widespread action that is needed uh, to achieve the goals that we have to meet. Uh, and so I'd say, you know, first off, parents need to understand that connection between climate change and their children's health and in what, engage in whatever ways they're able to to try to help us as a country uh, meet those goals. And then I think, secondly, it's understanding how climate change is impacting their children's health. And then that would could be from if, if for example, someone's child has asthma. Uh, for example, we know that there's increased pollen levels that are produced as mm-hmm. a result of the increased CO2 in the environment. And so, you know, checking pollen indicators before uh, deciding if the child can go outside and play or making sure that they see their doctor to optimize uh, the medications that their child's receiving for their asthma. Uh, that all of that can be, again, preventative in trying to address and reduce kind of the impact that climate change is having on their children's health. Okay, thank you. So um, my last question is I've tried to uh, uh, shine a light on the industry's uh, contribution uh, to uh, the problem, uh, the carbon footprint of the healthcare industry, obviously hospitals, 24-7 24-7 of a large um, uh, carbon footprint. So maybe I'll just limit it to your experience at Harvard and Mass General. What's, what's your assessment of efforts by these very august uh, institutions uh, in addressing uh, this issue or owning the problem themselves and trying to do their own, uh, make their own efforts to mitigate or, or reduce, um, you know, we're at 415 parts per million now uh, of, uh, of carbon equivalents in the atmosphere. Uh, we're getting close to uh, doubling uh, since pre-industrial. So again, uh, what's your sense of Harvard and Mass General? Yeah, I uh, always, when I talk about this nationally and internationally, I always say that you know we as a healthcare sector really have to uh, clean up our home first. <laughs> and so before we you know, start pointing fingers at other sectors, right. uh, we have to recognize the connection, as you pointed out, between the greenhouse gases that the healthcare sector is producing and the fact that that is actually contributing to more patients coming to our doors, um, and especially mine is the sort of front door and front line uh, of the hospital and the emergency department. So Harvard has, uh, they signed a, all the Harvard-affiliated teaching hospitals uh, signed a commitment uh, to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. And I think, you know, the next step is to really try to uh, develop very targeted um, and targeted timelines um, and clear approaches. Uh, you know, Partners Healthcare System, which Massachusetts General mm-hmm. Hospital is a part of, um, you know, have been national leaders on this. Uh, and, you know, they've worked with Healthcare Without Harm and Practice Green Health and, you know, other organizations that are really working to um, try to... Uh, get the healthcare sector within the U.S. Um, and internationally to recognize the importance and, and commit um, to rapid action. And so I think that, you know, there, while action is happening, it's, um, you know, invariably um, needs to happen faster. Um, and I think there was actually a, a recent uh, paper that came out in environmental research letters um, that really looked at uh, what the international uh, landscape was. They looked at 36 countries. Uh, spanning 15 years, and there was one thing in that paper that really struck me, and that's the fact that 
looking at the domestic energy supply, that actually perhaps influencing that may have a greater impact than healthcare expenditure, for example. And so, you know, a lot of these hospital systems obviously operate within and get their energy um, from other sources. And so, again, trying to decrease the domestic energy supply and decarbonize that can have, you know, broad impacts to decreasing um, the carbon footprint for healthcare systems. So again, it just sort of highlights, you know, how complicated all of these issues are and why we really need a multidisciplinary effect. And for healthcare systems, which often, you know, leverage great power within cities, you know, can work with the city to try to decarbonize the entire energy infrastructure, recognizing that that will thus also decrease their um, carbon footprint. So thank you. I have a quick follow-up on this. Uh, since I just read yeah. Norway is divesting from uh, fossil fuel investments uh, their sovereign fund, I guess, is a trillion dollars. Um, mm-hmm. So that obviously made the uh, made the news. What's your understanding of? Obviously, Harvard has a large endowment, uh, a lot of money under management. Do you understand has Harvard made that same decision? Yeah. So it's something that many individuals are really uh, pushing uh, the administration here to commit to and. You know, I think the precedent that they cite um, is the fact that Harvard did divest from tobacco. Um, and, when, again, when you think about the health impact of tobacco versus uh, climate change, mm-hmm. um, you know, you could make the, again, very similar, if not greater, argument um, to divest from fossil fuels. Uh, and so that action is um, and the movement is still ongoing, and uh, obviously time will tell. Uh, but I do think that, you know, if Harvard does divest, uh, that obviously would carry great weight and hopefully act to sure. um, move things to a tipping point um, where uh, hopefully more and more action um, would occur. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Sous. We're at our time limit here. I, I do genuinely want to applaud your work and effort here. This essay I'll cite along with this audio, um, but uh, I hope you can continue uh, uh, to be productive in this regard, and I'm assuming you'll continue with your Lancet Countdown work? I am, yes. I'm going to be leading the U.S. brief again for 2019, so we are kind of ramping that process up, and I'm really excited uh, to especially uh, do this uh, in a time where the U.S. is is talking about uh, federal climate change action, and I think uh, hopefully the recommendations we have can have an impact on discussions. Okay, so with that, Dr. Salas, thank you again for your time. I'm very appreciative. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It was an honor to be here, and thank you for highlighting this critical topic. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.